one day Jesus was on the side of a mountain and he opened his mouth and he lifted up his voice and he began to teach. And the world has never, ever been the same. Uh, we call it the Sermon on the Mount and that's what we talked about last week. And Jesus' sermon that day on the side of the mountain, it articulated his vision and it represented his values for what he thought life should look like for those who follow him and are part of the kingdom of God. Jesus said, if you're gonna follow me and become part of the kingdom of God, a kingdom that is but not yet, a kingdom that is not of this world but it is infiltrating this world, he says, if you wanna know what my vision and what the values of the kingdom, what they actually are, he says, I'm about to tell you. And then he cast a vision for a brand new way to be human. He, he talked about a way that opts for humility over arrogance. He talked about a way that chose compassion over self-righteousness, forgiveness over bitterness, uh, doing good for your enemy rather than seeking revenge against your enemy. Uh, Jesus talked about inside the kingdom that for those in the kingdom of God, that it's just as important how you feel about someone as it is how you treat someone. He cast vision for a lifestyle of faith rather than fear and love, not of hate. And then he summed up his sermon in one big statement. And just not his sermon in one statement, but he took all the Old Testament, he took all the law and he took all the prophets and he summed it up just like this. He says, so in everything, in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you for this sums up the law and the prophets. And Jesus said, okay, if you've never read the Old Testament, you don't have time to read the Old Testament, not been interested in the Old Testament, let me tell you what the Old Testament is about. Let me tell you what the first five books that we call law are about. Let me tell you about the books of wisdom and the books of prophets, minor prophets and major prophets. Let me tell you what it's all about. It's about doing to others what you would want them to do to you. That's it. That's the reason said, Jesus said, humility beats self-righteousness. Humility beats arrogance. Why? Because... You don't want to encounter an arrogant, self-righteous person, but what you would love to encounter is a humble, compassionate person. So if you like interacting with humble, compassionate people, then you should be humble and compassionate to people. If you want to be forgiven when you do wrong, then you should forgive when people do you wrong. And so everything that Jesus said found application in this idea, in everything that you do. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Which is, by the way, Jesus would say, what the Old Testament is all about. And so last week we said that Jesus offers us a new life that isn't always easier, but is always better. Jesus offers us a new life, a new way of life that isn't always easier, though we wish it were. It's not always easier, but it is always better. And the overarching theme from last week was this idea that following Jesus may not be convenient today. To live out this vision, to live out these values that Jesus presents in the Sermon on the Mount, it may not be convenient today. It may not be convenient in your current set of circumstances. It may not be convenient for your relationship or your social scene or at the office. It, it may not be convenient financially. It may not be convenient relationally. It may not be convenient today, but following Jesus, as he presents it in the totality of his message, it will be worth it one day. It may not be convenient today, but it will be worth it one day. And if you embrace this vision, if you embrace these values, 
for what a Christ follower is supposed to look like, how we're supposed to behave, how we're supposed to treat one another. If you embrace this vision and these values, Jesus said, it may not be convenient today, but one day it will be worth it. And one day you will look back and say, I'm so glad I did it that way. And so when people listened to the Sermon on the Mount that day for the very first time, it didn't feel easier, it felt harder, but Jesus promised that it was better. And Jesus, he would give us these tough sayings throughout his ministry, and just not on the Sermon on the Mount, though. Some of the things that we have recorded elsewhere, Jesus probably said to some degree in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus would say, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. Not easier, feels harder, but Jesus said, it's better. And so as Jesus is preaching this Sermon on the Mount that's recorded in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, what we find is Jesus radically reinterpreting the Old Testament, and that's a big deal. And this is a big part of the ongoing narrative in the Gospels. And, and if you're not a frequent reader of the Gospels, you're not that familiar with the Gospels, this is so important because Jesus shows up and in this sermon, this iconic, epic sermon of Jesus, he offers a radical reinterpretation of the Old Testament. And he sums up the Old Testament with do to others as you would have them do to you. And so this was revolutionary. This, this was, you know, take your breath away, your heart skips a beat, you're not sure if you heard him correctly. He says, I'm gonna take all the Old Testament and put it in one statement. And we're talking about a people who had 613 commandments that they attempted to observe. The, the Judaism, the Jewish religion, the Jewish faith, they had 613 commandments. Some of them were thou shalt nots and some of them were thou shalts. And Jesus said, okay, put all that stuff aside and let me just tell you what the Old Testament is about. Let me tell you what you should be busy doing. You should be busy doing to others what you would have them do to you. And what Jesus didn't say, which is inferred by what he said, Jesus is saying, you're busy doing all this sacrificial stuff. You're busy trying to dot every I and cross every T. You're busy taking all this time walking back and forth from the temple. But I'm telling you, if you wanna get it right, if you want to get to the heart of what God was talking about to begin with, it's do to others what you want others to do to you. This was far less complicated than 613 commandments, but it was far more demanding. And so Matthew says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it says when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Now, many of us, that's, we've, if we've heard this verse before or you know, we've read it before, it's almost like we get the picture that they're, they're just sitting there looking at Jesus mesmerized and just like you know, wanting to sign up for his fan club going, oh, that's incredible, that's awesome. Say it again, Jesus, say it again. But it wasn't that at all. And the word amazed, though it's true to the original language, it's, it's, it's an unfortunately incomplete uh, translation of what actually is going on when it says that they were amazed. It means they were overwhelmed. It, it means that they almost got to the place where they lost their mental composure. I, I don't know if you've ever heard something before. You know, we use the phrase, you know, it blew my mind. That, that's, what the reader, that's what the reader should really hear in this phrase. That's what we should read into this phrase. It, Jesus just blew their mind. They were shocked by what they heard. What they heard seemed impossible, like who could do that? It seemed illogical, it didn't make sense from a human perspective. It seemed impractical, like, like who's got time to do this stuff? Who's got time to actually live this stuff out? Jesus had knocked them off their equilibrium by his words. They were amazed. He challenged their thinking. Now think about this for a minute. 
There's few things that are as offensive to you and to me than for someone to challenge our thinking, especially our established thinking. Especially thinking that we have adopted once upon a time, we claimed it as our own, and we've lived by it, and it served us well. When someone challenges your established, accepted way of thinking, it's a bit uncomfortable. Sometimes it's offensive. Jesus challenged the way these people had thought for their entire lives. He challenged their presuppositions and their assumptions. He, he challenged their biblical interpretations. Now, for those of you who consider yourselves church people, you grew up in church, you know this to be true. Few things will upset church people as much. Few things will offend church people as much as to challenge their interpretation of the scripture, especially their interpretation of the scripture that they have been taught since childhood or that they went to school and someone taught them and then to challenge those assertions, to challenge those, you know, those uh, interpretations. That can be troubling. It can be unnerving. It can be offending. And that's exactly what Jesus did that day. He challenged their interpretations of the scripture that they had been taught since they were a child. He challenged their traditions and they were bewildered. They were offended, they were amazed, they were, they were astonished. Part of them wanted to protest, but a part of them wanted to applaud. They weren't sure what to do with it. It certainly didn't seem like an easier way of life. It seemed like a harder way of life, but there was something deep down inside that made them want to believe that maybe it is a, a better way of life. And so they left that day kind of confused, kind of offended, kind of astonished, kind of amazed. Their mind was blown. And Matthew gives us a little bit more insight. It says, because they were amazed and astonished because he, Jesus, taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. And from the very beginning of Jesus's public teaching ministry, he is placed on one side of the spectrum and the religious establishment is placed on the other end of the spectrum. From the very beginning, Matthew says, get this clear in your mind. Jesus is over here, the religious establishment is over here because this is the narrative for the rest of the gospels. This is the antagonism which begins below the surface but eventually bubbles up into where everybody knows exactly what's going on. Jesus is over here, he talks in a way that's nothing like the religious establishment. Jesus interprets the scripture in a way that's nothing like the interpretation of the religious establishment. Jesus speaks with a tone that the religious establishment is void of. Jesus has a demeanor and a disposition that is absent from the religious establishment. He speaks as one who has authority. His words have weight. When Jesus speak, speaks, you feel it. His words, they land in your lap and you... You feel it, you have to wrestle with it. You can't just shake it off, it's, it's weighty. He speaks with confidence. He speaks with authenticity. He speaks with persuasion. He's direct. He doesn't beat around the bush. He's direct, he's so direct, sometimes there's nowhere to hide. There's nobody and no thing that you can hide behind. He's so direct in what he teaches. And he teaches in a way that demands your attention. Now, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and, and all the folks that made up the religious establishment of the day, the status quo of the day, when they taught, they appealed to authority. 
They did not claim to have authority themselves. The only authority they claimed to have was the authority of the law, the authority of the scripture, and the interpretation that had been handed down through the ages, the tradition, the oral law, the oral tradition of the elders that had been passed down from one generation to another were rabbis and scribes and scholars of the law where they had read the law and the prophets and then they wrote volumes upon volumes upon volumes of books explaining what the law and the prophets meant. But Jesus stood and he claimed no authority except himself. And he stood only on his two feet, unlike the religious establishment. And so Jesus, as we're presented at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he's either hubris, full of hubris and full of presuppositions that are ill-informed and misinformed. He's either a man of great undue presumption or he is a voice that we dare not neglect. Or as C.S. Lewis said, he is either liar, he is either a lunatic, or he is Lord. Now, I want you to stop for a moment. Pause. If he's Lord, if he is who the gospels are making a case to say this is who Jesus is, he is Savior, he is Lord, he is God. If Jesus is Lord, how can we dismiss anything that he says? How can we neglect, ignore, push to the side anything that he says? If Jesus is who he says he is, How can you just do your own thing? How can I just do my own thing? And so that's why every gospel on every page is answering the question, who is Jesus? Because if Jesus is who he claimed to be, it changes how we think about everything. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, every narrative, every miracle, every discourse is answering that question, who is Jesus? Matter of fact, I think everybody should read the Gospels. I think you should read the Gospels continually. I'm currently reading the Gospel of Matthew. It it wouldn't be a bad exercise to go through your Bible and at the top of every page in the New Testament, especially on the four Gospels, just right at the top of the page, who is Jesus? Question mark Because that's what that page is trying to give you and I an answer to. And so when you read through the ministry narratives of Jesus, those were the pictures we colored in Sunday school. Uh, the, the ministry narratives, Jesus killing the sick, Jesus, you know, taking a blind person, giving them the sight, the deaf person, giving them their hearing back. When it comes to the ministry narratives of Jesus, they're just not intended to be feel good, heartwarming, inspiring stories. They're intended to show us who Jesus is and what he came to do. And so after the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus jumps into public ministry full bore. He's got lots of people following him. He's performing miracles. He's teaching. And so his popularity just continues to be on the rise. And after Matthew 7, the Sermon on the Mount ends, in Matthew chapter 8, immediately we are introduced to a leper. A man with leprosy. A man who isn't allowed, per the law of that day, social law, religious law, but specifically religious law, a man in those days who was not allowed to come near people. He was not allowed to come near the temple. He was not allowed to come near religious people. He was not allowed to come near friends or family. But yet, what we find in Matthew 8 is this leper who is not allowed to be near anyone, feeling the freedom, feeling enough freedom to take a risk to come near Jesus. And we should all just stop and think about that for a moment because this is a guy who's in forced quarantine. 
And we know right now in our present you know, world, our present country, with everything that's going on, we understand forced quarantine. We understand the idea of a contagion. We understand the idea of a virus. We understand the idea of I'm fearful that I'm gonna get what you've got. And here's a guy who's been told, you are in quarantine, Bubba. You're not allowed to be near anything or anybody. Just stay to yourself. But yet he takes a risk. He feels the freedom to come near Jesus. And we find that Jesus reaches into this guy's world. This guy who's been forgotten, shunned, neglected, mistreated. And then Jesus does the unthinkable. Jesus departs from religious law. Jesus departs from tradition. Jesus departs and he touches him. He touches the man and he heals him. And it's a glimpse into the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God that now is the kingdom of God one day that will be in its full force and full reality where everything that is wrong with the world, including disease, is made right. This is a glimpse into the future kingdom of God. The kingdom of God came near that man that day. And so then we go on and we read not only about a leper, but in Matthew 8, we read about a centurion servant. This is a Roman soldier who had other Roman soldiers underneath his authority. And in the mind of the people, if you were Jewish, this guy right here represented everything wrong with your world. This guy represented violence, the bloodshed, and death of your people because they had invaded decades before. And at different times, at different cities and villages, since that moment, there have been moments where they came in and the Romans squashed uprising, squashed protests, squashed people just to make a point. These are the people who've taken the life of your people, of your countrymen. This is what's wrong with your world. This is what's holding you back from life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And this guy, part of the Roman occupation, comes to Jesus one day and says, my servant, my servant is sick. He's gonna die, he's paralyzed. I, I just know he's gonna die. And Jesus said, what, do you want me to come heal him? And he looks at Jesus and he says, no. No, you don't even have to do that. But if you'll just speak the word, I believe that my servant will be healed. And Jesus, with all of his people there, he's got his disciples there, he's got a big entourage of people there that are following him, and, and every single one of them Jewish. They're looking at Jesus talking to this centurion to begin with. They're, they're a little offended that Jesus will be talking to this guy. They're a little offended that Jesus doesn't seem to be mean to this guy. They're a bit offended that Jesus seems to be entertaining what this guy has come asking for. And Jesus then turns around and add insult to injury or injury to insult. Jesus looks at them and says, I've not found, I've not found such great faith among anybody in Israel than the faith of this Roman soldier right here. I'm amazed, Jesus said. And it was like a gut punch to everybody that was there. And you can imagine, I can just imagine Peter. Peter's sitting there, you know, he's listening to what Jesus says. And Jesus says, I've not found such great faith in all of Israel, nowhere. And, and Peter's like, what, what, what? What did he say, James? Tell me, what did he say? He said what you thought he said. Jesus, you're complimenting the faith of a Gentile? You're complimenting the faith of, that we affectionately refer to as a dog who's unclean? who's not even allowed in past the court of the Gentiles at the temple. We're not allowed to do business with them. We don't invite them into our houses. 
And you're saying he's got greater faith than the people of God? Jesus was offensive. I said it last week and I'll say it again. If Jesus has never offended you, you don't have a clue about what Jesus was saying. If you agree with everything that Jesus said, you don't understand what he's saying. Jesus was offensive. He was antagonistic. He was provocative. He stood on the outside and he pointed fingers at the establishment. He stood on the outside and he pointed fingers to say, hey, I'm going to challenge what you think. Not only about things, but about people. And then Jesus, I was reading this the other morning. I uh, told you I've been reading through Matthew and I was waiting for the coffee pot to get fully, you know, finished. And I was standing there. I had my Bible on the island and and I, I got to this passage in Matthew 8. And I'd read this before and it was like, man, for the first time I, I felt the weight of what Jesus said next. And Jesus, he says, I've not found such great faith in all of Israel. And then, then listen to this. He says, but I'm going to tell you one day, people like him, they're going to come from the east and the west. And they're going to sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God. Hold on, Jesus, are you saying that anybody, anyone is invited into the kingdom of God? Even Gentiles, even Roman soldiers? Because Jesus, that's what it sounds like you're saying. And it took their breath away. It offended their sensibilities, it offended their theology, it offended all of their assumptions. And then Jesus, we find him doing the most daring thing of all, the most controversial thing of all, the most offensive perhaps thing of all. We find him healing a mother-in-law. And it was Peter's mother-in-law. And I don't think Peter ever got over it. I'm not sure, I can't prove it, there's no scripture to back this up, but I think when Peter denied him, he was thinking, you shouldn't have healed her, bro. Shouldn't have healed her. I'm kidding. Jesus loves all the mother-in-laws of the world. I promise he does. So he heals Peter's mother-in-law. And then the narratives continue. And we find Jesus speaking to winds and waves and they obey him. He has authority over nature. We find him calling out demons that are possessing men and women. And he takes authority over the supernatural. Then we find him claiming to forgive sin and he claims authority over sin. I mean, who can forgive sin but God? And Jesus would say, exactly. And so Jesus, his way of life, his teaching, his ministry, they all converged to become a threat against the religious, political, and social status quo of the day. And this is the stories of the gospels. Now, in his first sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus sided against the religious establishment. He pointed them out. He called them out. He said, they're hypocrites. They're play actors. They pretend. They give. You know, they, they pray and they fast. But their heart's not in it. Don't do it the way they do it. Jesus called them out. But then, in Jesus' ministry, he begins to not only side against them, but he sides with the people that the religious establishment had sided against. Jesus began to side with the misfits and the oddballs and the rejects and the outsiders. 
Those that the establishment pointed at and said, they're unholy, they're unrighteous, they're unclean, they're not welcome, and they're not loved. And Jesus said, okay, if you're going to point your finger at them, if you're going to make them the butt of all of your jokes, if you're going to put them in your preaching and say they're the problem, if you're going to just constantly pick at them and point at them, if you're going to unlove them, if you're going to bring them front and center to say they're the problem, then I'll tell you what, when you point at them, you're going to have to point at me because I'm going to side with them. And not only am I siding with them, but I'm going to stand up for them. And for the rest of the Gospels, we find that Jesus' heart his attention, his affections seem to drift in the direction of those people. The misfits, the oddballs, the reject, the unclean, unholy, unrighteous, unwelcome, unloved. And we see it in chapter 9. In chapter 9, Matthew writes about a tax collector. His name is Levi. We also call him Matthew. Matthew writes about himself in the following chapter and says, I want to tell you about the day that I met Jesus. Now, first of all, let me tell you about a tax collector. Some of you know this, some of you don't, but a tax collector, they were considered the worst of the worst of the worst of the worst when it came to sinners. Now, I grew up in church. Uh, some of you grew up in church. I think probably many, if not most of us who grew up in church. Somewhere along the way, we, we understood. It was, it was never written down. At least it wasn't in my world. Maybe it was in your world. They, they didn't put it in the discipleship class. They didn't put it on the wall, but... There seemed to be a hierarchy of sin, right? There seemed to be big sins and little sins, and you just picked up on which ones were which along the way, right? You realize that not all sins were equal. At least that's the way people talked about them and preached about them. There were, there were little bitty sins, and nobody talked about the little bitty sins. And, but then there were, you know, the big old sins. And man, that got into the sermon all the time. And, and if you were going to be guilty of sin, you didn't want to be guilty of the, the big old sins. And, and you picked up on it. Well, in the first century, they had their own hierarchical list of sin. And at the very top of the list was being a tax collector because you were considered a traitor. You worked with the Romans. You worked with the enemy. You were disowned by your family, by your faith, by your nation. There, there was a teaching of the rabbis leading up to the first century, two or three centuries even before Jesus showed up, that said, tax collectors are without hope. Now, hopefully there's nobody, there's hopefully nobody who does one thing or another thing that you would ever look at and just say, they're hopeless. Hopefully, you don't know what it's like to have someone look at you and say, well, you're hopeless. You're irredeemable. You're beyond hope. You're no need of help. You're just hopeless. Well, if you were a tax collector, you knew that look. You understood that sentiment. That was the official teaching. You're beyond hope. Your money was tainted. You weren't even allowed to give people gifts because they wouldn't receive them. Because if they received your gift, they would be unclean. You weren't allowed to give testimony in a court because you were considered a cheat and a liar. People didn't have to honor their promises to you because you're a tax collector. And Matthew says, that was my world. And one day there I was doing what I did. And Jesus walks up to me and with no judgment in his eyes and no self-righteousness in his voice and no furrow on his brow, he looks at me and he says, follow me. And that's what I did. 
And then Matthew threw a party for all of his other big sinner friends. And Jesus goes to the party. And it says, but when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with such scum? Such hopeless, worthless trash. Can you imagine? Of course you can. Now, if we would have been there in Jesus's audience in real time in the first century, let me burst some of your bubbles. Some of us would have been outside the party asking just that question. How can a man of God eat with this type of person? How can a man sent from God hang out with these people, spend his evening in this house? Nobody can be from God and hang out with that scum. That would have been some of us. Some of us, we've been the sinners at the party. We've been on the inside. And sometimes we vacillate between the two. And we can always find ourselves in the gospel narratives. Sometimes we're the unrighteous, sometimes we're the self-righteous. And it says, when Jesus heard this, when he heard what they said, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. It's like, what? And then what do you mean by that, Jesus? And good for us, he tells us. He says, for I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. Jesus said, if you know you're messed up, Jesus said, if you know you're screwed up and jacked up, we're gonna get along great. That's what Jesus would say. However, if you think you're good when you're not good, when you think you're up and up and really you're down and out, when you think you got it all together and boy, I'll tell you, you don't have anything together, me and you're gonna have a problem with each other. You're gonna be bothered by me and I'm gonna be bothered by you. But if you know that you've colored outside the lines, if you know you're not good at being good, I'm telling you, we're going to get along great. Jesus said, you're my type of person. You're my people. It, it cuts against the version of Jesus that many of us thought and subscribed to and, and thought we heard about when we were children and when we were in our adolescence and even maybe as early adults. We thought that Jesus' people were the good people. We thought that the Jesus people were the morally upstanding people. The people who were good at being good. Sundays, they got up, they put on their blazers, and they put on their tie, and they put on their pleated you know, khakis, and the more pleats they had in the khakis, the holier before God and people they were. And then they would grab the thickest Bible on the shelf because the thicker the Bible, the better they were. And they would sit as close as they possibly could and they would shake their head and they would say amen and they'd pull out an envelope and they'd give and they'd write a check and they'd open doors and say, hey brother and hey sister, how are you? And we were like, that's Jesus, people. They don't even have to look at the words in the book. They already know it. They've memorized the songs. They've memorized the scripture. That's Jesus, people. Jesus said, no. No, no. I tell you, I'm looking for the broken. I I'm looking for those who... They're not holding it together. I'm looking for those who are sick and know it. Matthew followed Jesus. And we should think about how incredible that it was that he felt comfortable enough to do that. He didn't feel threatened. 
He didn't feel unsafe. He didn't fear a bait and switch. But when Jesus said, follow me, he felt comfortable enough to do it. Jesus hadn't made him the butt of his jokes. Jesus hadn't extended a self-righteous judgmental finger in the direction of tax collectors. Jesus is becoming a friend to sinners. And for the rest of the gospel stories, we find that sinners who were nothing like Jesus loved to be with Jesus. When they were with Jesus, they felt their worth. When they were with Jesus, they felt compassion. When they were with Jesus, they felt love. They weren't intimidated by him. They weren't fearful of him. They didn't find that he was angry with them. Listen, study the religions of the world. I challenge you to do it. Jesus is the only God man has ever heard of who loves sinners. The only one. All of them. And Matthew records later on that he was a friend to sinners. And that should make you proud as a Jesus follower. That should inform the way you live your life as a Jesus follower. That should inform the type of church that we want as Jesus followers. Jesus saw people differently. It says that Jesus, he went through all the towns and the villages and he taught in synagogues proclaiming the good news. The message of Jesus, when it was heard, it was, wow. Well, if that's true, that's good news. Sounds a little too good to be true, but if it's true, it's good news. Jesus' message is this. God loves you. He loves you unconditionally. He loves you without strings attached. He loves you just the way you are, not as you should be. He loves you as you are. And the message of Jesus was this, that God's forgiveness is greater than your failure. That God's grace is greater than your guilt. His mercy will swallow up the mess that you've made of your own life. He's not angry. He's inviting people into the family of God. It says when he saw the crowds, because Jesus saw people, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus was able to do what sometimes we struggle to do. He was able to look beyond their sin and to see them. He was able to look beyond their addiction and see them. Jesus was able to look beyond their greatest failure and see them. Jesus was able to look beyond the guilt and the mess and the failure and he saw them. And he said they're harassed, they're helpless. They're hurting themselves and they're hurting others. Sin is terrorizing them. They're enslaved. They can't help themselves. They're, they're helpless. They're drowning. They're trapped. Sin is having a field day in their life. And they have no one to help them. Because the religious establishment has washed their hands and walked away and said, no, they don't have a problem. They are the problem. Jesus said they don't have a shepherd to lead them. They don't have anybody who will care about them. Jesus said, I know how they feel. They feel defeated. They feel like losers. They've been treated like garbage year after year by person after person. They're tired of not measuring up. They're tired of looking in the mirror and seeing what they see. They're tired of looking at other people and being reminded that they're not like other people. 
And Jesus said, I see them. And so then Jesus, to this group of people, to people like me and people perhaps like you, Jesus gives a startling invitation. And here's what he says to people like them and to people like us. He says, come to me. Come to me. Just don't follow me. Just don't come after me, but would you just come to me? I'm not the establishment. I'm not the temple. I'm not like the synagogue. Come to me. I'm not like those self-righteous folks. Come to me. I'm not like the people who think they've got it together and they treat other people as though they're worthless and less valuable than they are. Come to me. I'm not inviting you to religion. I'm not inviting you to keep rules. I'm not inviting you to make sacrifices. I'm not inviting you to a to-do list. I'm inviting you to come to me. I'm different. I've not come to start a religion. I've come to restore your relationship with your creator, with your father. Come to me. Because what you're looking for, though you don't know it, you're looking for me. And what feels missing in your life, though you don't know it, is me. So, come to me. Who, Jesus? Who do you want to come to you? And don't you remember what Jesus said after that? He said, all of you who have it all together, who have life figured out and are very good at being good. No, Jesus said, come to me. All of you, all of you who are weary and burdened. So if you're tired, if the weight is dragging you down, if the weight of life, if the weight of sin, if the weight of guilt, if the weight of shame, If you're exhausted, if you're depleted, you feel defeated, if you're tired because you don't measure up, if you're tired of pretending as though you're trying to act as though you measure up and you know you don't, if you're trying to get in good with God always and you're exhausted, if you're always trying to be good for two or three days in a really good way because You screwed up four days ago and you want to try to get back in with God and you want to make sure that God doesn't give you cancer or God doesn't kill somebody in your family. And so you're going to go over and above and you're going to play that game and you're going to walk that that tightrope. You're going to walk on eggshells and you're just exhausted. You need a job promotion. So you're just trying really hard to make God pleased with you so that maybe, just maybe God will give you the, the nod. You see, if you're weary, if you're burdened, if you got all those rules you can't keep, you're tired of the dress code, you're you're tired of the the menu, you can eat this and you can't eat that, and you're burdened by it all, come to me. If you're trying harder and harder, but you're feeling less and less loved by God, come to me. If you say you believe in God, but you just don't enjoy him, come to me. If you're tired of the cycle of guilt and shame and frustration and fatigue, come to me. Come to me. And I, listen to what he says, will give you rest. Look at them. They're exhausted. They're burdened. Look at them. They've been forsaken and forgotten, disenfranchised, excommunicated. Come to me and find rest 
a better way to live, a better way of managing your life, a rest from the inadequacy, the guilt and the shame and the anxiety and the fear and the uncertainty and the feeling like a second-class person. Take my yoke upon you. The yoke was just a wooden structure that a pair of ox, a pair of oxen would, would pull a load, would pull a burden. And a carpenter would come and size up the ox and make sure that it was well fitted. And the better it fit, the, the more weight that the ox could pull. And typically in those days, it was always a two-person, two, you know, two-animal yoke. There'd be a stronger ox and a weaker ox. And the stronger ox was paired with a weaker ox because the weaker was weaker and the strong was strong and they would pull together. A yoke in the first century was the teaching of a rabbi. It was, it was the interpretation of scripture. It was a teaching, a code of life. It was a vision for life, values for that life. Jesus said, take, take it, take mine and make it your own. Take my view, take my interpretations, take my teaching, make it your own. Learn from me. Let me teach you. Let me teach you how to live life. Come on, come to me. Let me teach you how to forgive the unforgivable. Come to me. Let me teach you how to handle disappointment. Come to me and let me teach you how to rest in God's love, God's favor for you. Come to me. Let, me. let me teach you how to rest in the goodness and the grace of God. Let me teach you how to live. And you will find rest for your soul. Question. Doesn't that sound better than toiling and working to exhaustion and trying harder and harder and harder and harder and harder to get God to love you just a little bit more, just a little bit more, just a little bit more, harder, harder, harder to bless me, just a little bit more, a little bit more, harder, 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 so that nothing bad will happen, harder, 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 so it'll work out for us, harder, 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 so I can make up for what I did last night. Doesn't rest sound better than that? And for those of you, your souls are anxious. Your souls are weary and burdened. You're depleted and defeated. Jesus has come to me. For my yoke is easy. It's easy. And my burden is light. I'm inviting you to come to me. Get in the yoke with me, Jesus would say. I'll do the heavy pulling. I'll do the heavy lifting. I'll do for you what you can't do for yourself. Just get in the yoke. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Yeah, but Jesus, I don't measure up. You don't have to. I do. Jesus, I, I, I'm not good at being good. Jesus would say, that's okay. Nobody's good at being good. There's only one that's good, and I'm him. So come on. My yoke is easy. My burden's light. Get in here with me. I'm going to do the hard pulling for you. What? 
Doesn't this sound like an easier way? I thought that Jesus asked us to do the harder things because they're the better things. But now it seems like what is the harder thing and the better thing ends up being the easier thing. Can both of those be true? Jesus said, when you get in the yoke with me, it is. What's hard can become easier if you let me pull the weight. Rest. Rest in what Jesus has done for you. I think that's what Jesus would want you to do. Jesus took all the things, all the sin, all the laws that we broke, And he took that sin, guilt, and shame, and he went to the cross. And he nailed all of our sins to the cross. He removed our sins far from us. And now when God sees you, he doesn't see you through the filter of your sin. When you follow Jesus, he doesn't see you for your worst moment. He sees you as though you lived the life that Jesus lived been justified rest in that come on rest in that he doesn't see you like you see yourself he doesn't see you the way they see you he sees you like he sees Jesus rest in that feel that you're as loved as what you're ever going to be loved by God You're as accepted as you're ever going to be accepted by God. Favored and blessed as you're ever going to be favored and blessed by God. Not because of anything you've done, but entirely because of what Jesus has done. And you don't have to work harder. You don't have to try harder. Jesus said you just need to rest. Rest in what Jesus has said about you. He says you're chosen. You're blessed. You're a son. You're a daughter of God. You're free from condemnation. You're free from the power of sin. You're more than a conqueror. That's who you are. Rest in that. And rest in the promises that Jesus has made to you. That he's going to be your helper. That he's never going to leave you. That he's never going to forsake you. Listen to his words. And maybe your life will change. Come to me. All of you who are weary heavy burden and I will give you rest take my yoke upon you learn from me for I am humble and lowly in spirit my yoke is easy my burden is light come to me let's bow our heads and close our eyes if you're here today and You're weary, you're exhausted, you're burdened with life, with religion, with a version of Christianity that you grew up with and all of your life you've been trying to get God to love you more. All of your life you've been trying to get blessable. All of your life you've been trying to get to a place and you're fatigued, you're exhausted. Life's been hard, religion hasn't helped. Jesus has come to me. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to give you an opportunity to pray a simple prayer. 
right there by faith that says, Heavenly Father, thank you for loving me just as I am. Thank you for loving me. And right now, the best way I know how I receive Jesus as my Savior and Lord. Change me. Forgive me. In Jesus' name. In just a moment, we're going to sing together at all of our campuses. And I want you just to stand with me right now. Everywhere, just stand. And if you're here today and you're fatigued and you're weary and you're burdened, if that's you, if it's how you feel, if your soul is lacking rest, some of our pastors are going to be down front. If you want a place to pray or a person to pray with, we're here. We'll be here. If you're here today and you place your faith in Jesus and you just want to tell somebody about it, we're here. But maybe this is your moment, your opportunity to come to Him and let it go and find rest for your soul. Father, speak in this moment in Jesus' name.